Terrible Toby's is Kitchener's independent, community-driven pet supply store. Conveniently located just outside of downtown Kitchener, Terrible Toby's has created a new way to shop for your pet, combining fun, educational moments with an easy and convenient experience. Join Terrible Toby's for their weekly neighborhood walks, monthly nail trimming clinics, or their next pet portrait day. Learn more in-store or follow Terrible Toby's on Facebook and Instagram for all their updates. Welcome back to the Dog Friendly KW podcast with Justina McKenzie on Midtown Radio KW. Today we are joined by Kala James, a member of the KWSP Humane Society, and we are myth-busting facts about the Humane Society. So let's get back into it. All right. I'm excited to get into some more detailed myths. So there are lots of myths around adoption. So what are the most common misconceptions you hear about adopting from the Humane Society? Let's set those straight. Uh, common comments. I don't have a six foot fence, so you won't adopt to me. Not right. I live in an apartment, so you won't adopt to me. Not right. Um, I don't have a, a vet history or I don't have a vet reference or... Um, you know, I've never owned a pet before, so I don't think you'll adopt me. All of those things are are misconceptions. The other big one is you're going to do a home visit. You want to come and see my home. We don't do home visits at all. Uh, and I think a lot of people also on the flip side, we have a lot of people make comments that our screening process isn't long enough, isn't robust enough. We don't spend enough time. And so our, our adoption process is one that is done by a lot of shelters and actually has some science behind it because there's been a lot of people look at these adoption processes to know that whether or not something is a good indicator of whether it would be a good home or not. And so our process is really all about the adoption counseling process. We want to spend time with you. We want to know what type of pet you're looking for. We want to know what type of home you have because we're, you're looking for a specific type of pet or personality and we want to try to match you with that. And if, you know, you look at Fluffy the cat who's orange and adorable and you think that, hey, I really love them, but that personality match just isn't a fit. We can help you to guide you and say, is this the type of personality you're looking for in a cat? Because this is what Fluffy's personality is. And you may go, no. So then we'll say, actually, Joe next door, my names are terrible. (laughs) Joe next door um, has the exact type of personality you're looking for. And actually the type of home he is in need of sounds like it fits with you. Why don't we check him out? Why don't we talk with you about him? And so that counseling process is really to make sure that we are getting a really great match, answering all of your questions and trying to fit the needs of the pest as bad as possible. Uh, We don't want people to be afraid of that process. We are here to walk you through it and answer your questions. And I can assure you apartments, no six foot fences and no previous uh, pet history is more than welcome to come and adopt a pet from us. I think that's like a really important piece to dive into and like myth bust for people because so many organizations um, and humane societies, like they truly just want what's best for the pet. And so like they will work with you to find, you know, the best pet for you and the best match kind of vice versa for the animal. Um, But those I've heard those myths or those statements a lot as being things that like I've also myth busted for people in the community because they don't always know. No. And we've been hearing more and more too that, you know, the Humane Society won't adopt a dog to a family with children. That's also not true. We have found in the last uh, year and a bit, even longer than that, that we are finding more large breed dogs coming in with behaviors 
such as resource guarding, where they could guard a couch, they could guard a person, food guarding, where they're going to guard a food bowl, um, or where maybe they're jumpy and mouthy, and they could be, you know, 100, 120 pounds. And so we're very cognizant that we want to make sure that the placement into a home is great for that dog and also safe for the family. And so there definitely are times where we do have restrictions where no young children can be in the home just because of the behaviors that we're seeing and how we can best support that dog and get them the best outcome. But we definitely have other dogs that come in that are welcome to be in a home with children. Uh, we just, right now, we seem to be getting more of those dogs with behaviors that are not a great fit for, for a home with, with young children, like toddlers or babies. As a owner of a dog who has resource guarded since he was eight weeks old, I think that is very responsible to not put that type of dog into a home with small children because I can't imagine how Marshall would have done in that type of environment. It would not have been successful for him. Um, but I do have a follow-up question because this is something that Kirsty and I have um, talked about and, and tried to unpack. Um, will the Humane Society adopt out to folks who have in the past surrendered an animal or have had experience with like, let's say for lack of a better phrase, like a failed adoption or like a failed situation with a pet? Because some rescues are like a hard no on that. Yeah, we we are so big on on supporting people and pets stay together. We also recognize that somebody can hit a crisis, right? Whether it be financial, you're not able to care for that pet in that moment. You had a sudden six thousand dollar emergency vet bill, or maybe you you know you lost your job, and and at that moment, surrendering the pet was was the best option for you and the, that pet. We aren't going to hold that against anybody. We recognize that situations can change. Three years ago, you may have been in a position where you did the best for your pet in your home by saying, I don't have the ability to care for it, whatever the reason. And right now, this is best for the pet. But you're coming back three years later, and we want to have that conversation with you. You know, obviously, if they came to us and we had that history, why has that changed? Why why are you interested in adopting again? Um, you know, it, we really want it to be about a conversation, not just a rubber stamp of a yes or a no. And, you know, we recognize how drastically things can change from year to year. Yeah, we definitely appreciate that. And that's a conversation Justine and I have had many times. I mean, both having our own experiences with rescues, it's a really common, I think, thing that comes up with a lot of families. And like you're saying, like there's all kinds of reasons for someone having to rehome or an adoption having failed that are often very outside of their control. And I know having spoken to a number of people who've gone through this, like the guilt and shame that they feel and almost like limiting their potential opportunities in the future to own another animal, like it's a really challenging thing to deal with. And you know what, that failed adoption may have been that you you got them home. And I, me personally, I would applaud somebody who comes forward and says, we've tried something. It's not a fit for this pet. It's not a fit for my home. Uh, we want to do what's best in the pet's interests. And we understand that as well. You know, there are certain things that are going to be out of your control when you get home. Obviously, we don't want that. We want to set the pet up and the, the potential adopter up for success. That's what we want to see. And we're very good at that, I would say. I'd like to brag about that because our return rate is very low. But obviously, we're also there to try to help people if there are challenges. Um, and we do recognize that sometimes that may mean that pets have to come back. Or we can refer them to other resources if there might be better supports out in the community for them uh, to try to work with them um, or, again, also rehome. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's definitely the value of, you know, how much time you spend with the applicant in the application process is getting to know them, knowing what their strengths are, maybe their limitations and, you know, working ultimately to find that best fit for them. Now I will Mm -hmm. dive into our next question. Can you tell us a bit about your funding model? I think many people believe the Humane Societies are government funded. So what does it really look like? They do. (laughs) We get that comment all the time. Well, you should take my pet because the government pays you or the government funds you. Um, And that's definitely not the case at all. That's been a very longstanding misconception. And if anybody out there listening to this has any ideas as to how we can better bust this moving forward, it'd be great. Um, We are not funded by any level of government for our charitable programs and services. What I think people get confused about is that we do animal services or what people know as animal control and bylaw for 13 municipalities, but that's what's called fee for service. So we receive a fee to provide a service. If we didn't have that fee, we wouldn't be providing that service and we wouldn't have, you know, the equipment, the people, the things attached along with it to provide that service. When we go into uh, owner surrenders, when we go into even past a pet stray hold, spaying and neutering them, all of the medical all the things that support our education programs um, and our outreach programs as well. Everything is funded by the generosity of our communities, by individual donors, by corporate donors, by our grant initiatives, as well as our fundraising initiatives. So when people say, you know, you're government funded, man, that would be a dream. (laughs) We would love that. The things we could do with funding, Um, but it, it isn't true. And so we really do hope that if people are looking to support Uh, an animal welfare charity or one that helps pets that they truly will consider us because every single dollar makes a difference. And luckily you folks make it so fun to support you when you put on awesome events like the Dash and Splash. And I know you've got your um, Halloween party coming up in a couple of weeks. So it doesn't have to be that kind of traditional giving a donation online. There's really kind of fun and engaging ways buying your calendar you do every year. Lots of really great ways to, um, to support and also kind of get some added value back. Yeah, we try to make it very differentiated in that, you know, you can buy that calendar for $20 or you can come out to a ticketed event for for a higher dollar value. If you don't want to come out to our events, you can also make a donation of any amount. We stress that $5 is fantastic. We absolutely love any amount that anybody's willing to give. Because it adds up, right? Okay. I got one more question for you. We'll have to try to keep it like pretty quick, but we hear phrases pretty often around like no kill and kill shelters, which I think does lead to a lot of myths around how humane societies operate today. So what does this actually look like within humane societies in today's context? So you'll find that humane societies, at least in Ontario, I find, and I would say across Canada have stepped away from using the term no kill. Uh, because it feels like it's highly weaponized in that no kill has so many different meanings and people will say, well, you're not no kill or you're, you're a kill shelter. We really want to talk about what does no kill mean in the traditional sense in the traditional definition, no kill means that you do not euthanize for lack of space and you're not euthanizing treatable, healthy animals. Uh, so what that does mean is euthanasia is considered not lightly at all. We would consider it for severe medical cases where we find that quality of life uh, or even severe uh, mental mental health as well. So 
quality of life is really big for us. And when we have an animal who's hit by a car and is suffering and is in distress and we can't reverse that, obviously the humane option is for humane euthanasia. When we're also looking at behavior cases that are very severe. So where we're talking about public safety risk, that is also something that we do not take lightly. We have our clinic teams, our medical teams, uh, and our animal care teams all involved in those decisions. And it also means when you're talking about the no-kill traditional model is that you're a euthanasia rate of 10% or less, which our humane society falls under. So if somebody were to come up to me and say, are you a no-kill shelter? Yes. But my comment normally is, what, what would your definition be of a no-kill shelter? And when they tell me what it is, I let them know that's us. And normally they're surprised. So we welcome anybody who has questions about kill shelter versus no kill shelter. Come and talk to us. Ask about a tour. I'd be happy to give anybody a tour of our shelter and tell them what we do. We're very proud of of having a very uh, great live release rate and helping as many pets as possible that come through our doors. Amazing. Thanks, Kala. Um, I'll plug uh, an episode we did a while back about behavioral euthanasia. It's a really, really challenging episode and a really challenging discussion, but um, very eye-opening in terms of kind of the stigma attached to some of the really challenging decisions that, you know, pet owners are often forced to make in really extreme cases. So do check out that episode if you're interested in kind of understanding that topic more. But again, Kala, thank you for all that information. We're going to take a quick break and we will come back to wrap up. 